Well, I'm going to do something that um, I should have done just a moment ago, which is um, half our church is missing today because of a wedding that took place last night in Jacksonville. But I want everybody to just move forward a row or two. Two rows, all right? This is like the splash zone in SeaWorld. Nobody wants Shamu to wet them. So that's, that's what it kind of looks like. But let's, let's come forward, all right? I think it can help us feel closer to one another when we're sitting closer to one another. Could you turn me down a little bit? I'm peaking just slightly. All right, now today I want to continue the discussion of Jesus as the bread of life, which Sean began last week. And I would be grateful if you'd turn with me to John 6 in your Bible, page 892 in your pew Bible. And look down with me at verses 48 through 51. Now, you guys probably know that the Gospel of John is very different than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a very different perspective. These other Gospels are commonly called the synoptic Gospels. They're synoptic because they, they see together. You could almost kind of picture the Gospel writers, um, you know, if they're, if they're at a stadium, if they're at a big soccer game, World Cup game, the three synoptic Gospels, they're all sitting next to each other. And, uh, but the Gospel of John, John is in the skybox. He's in a very different place. John is oftentimes called the theologian because he doesn't just report what happened. He already had, by the time he wrote the Gospel of John, he already had the other three Gospels. And so he knows what's already been written. And so John tells us what it means. And he provides important things that we're lacking. One of the things that we notice is, is told in all three of the synoptic Gospels is the, um, is the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves. That miracle is one of the few that's also repeated in the Gospel of John. So it happens right at the beginning here of John chapter 6. And interestingly, there is no Last Supper, technically speaking, in the Gospel of John. We see actually a lot of information about the Last Supper, about that night that we did get in the other Gospels. But there's actually no specific um, words of institution that Jesus gives. And so many scholars believe that John's including this teaching from earlier on in his ministry to give John's theological insight into what Jesus says later on in the Synoptic Gospels. So beginning at verse 48, look down with me. Jesus says to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, as I've been preparing this week, I've been thinking a lot about this imagery. About Jesus being the bread of life. About his promise that if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And just about food in general. <laughs> Have you ever thought about how food works? How it transfers life from one organism to another. There's this life-to-life -life transfer from the fruit to us, from the meat to us. And here's the odd thing. This normal, everyday process of life always involves death. Have you ever noticed that? Let me explain what I mean. This is a pear um, from my pear tree in my yard. In fact, I have a picture of it up here. And um, this is a picture of it during the winter months when it blooms. It has a, it's a very um, pretty tree. Um, but the fruit is actually not that tasty, I'm sad to say. We usually use it for smoothies. It's very good for like pear cobblers and stuff like that. Um, 
But the point is, uh, in order for me to gain life from this pear, I first have to pick it from the tree, right? And the moment I pick this pear, it's cut off from its source of life. And so this pear is actually dead. This pear is actually dead. It's ripe, but it's dead, right? Um, and when I take a bite of a pear, like this, Mm. <laughs> it's sweet, but it's just too hard. It's death. The death of this pear actually becomes a source of life for me. So there's this transfer from the life, from the nutrients, from the vitamins that are in the pear to my body, and then I get to carry them around with me, right? And it's basically, it works the same with meat. The death of the animal always comes before the life-giving benefit of the food. But on the other hand, the life-giving quality of any food that we know of in this world is only temporary. You know, if, if we eat them, they give us this energy and vitamins and nutrients, especially bacon. <laughs> I'm no scientist, but I want to believe it's very nutritious and good for me. <laughs> But after a while, the benefit of all these foods wears off, even for bacon, right? This life-to-life -life transfer from plant to person, from animal to person, eventually it runs out and we grow hungry again. And if we don't eat, we'll eventually die. This is the way it works with all mortal foods, like pears and pigs. Because whether or not we choose to eat the cobbler or the bacon, the days of that pear tree are numbered. And the days of that swine are numbered. But the food that Jesus is talking about is a different sort of food. It provides a perpetual satisfaction. So that anyone who eats of it will never hunger again, he says. This is impossible unless the food that he's talking about is food from another world. Do we understand that? He's talking about food from another world. Think with me for a moment. What would happen... If we were to eat food that comes from an eternal life source, what would happen if the food that we ate came from eternity, comes from someone who is immortal, or something that is immortal? And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6. Wouldn't it mean that if we ate this eternal food, that that the eternal life source that was in that thing would then flow to us? Wouldn't that be what it means? The bread that he gives is of an immortal kind of food, which transfers immortality to anyone who eats of it. Please look with me at verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. In other words, Jesus is saying, Jesus, the great I am, made flesh, the living bread who came down from heaven where nothing spoils. He's saying that since he's eternal, anyone who eats this bread, anyone who eats the bread of his flesh, he will live forever. So there's this transfer of his immortal life to anyone who eats the bread that he provides. But here's the thing. In order to give the world this bread... It first has to be offered up sacrificially. This principle of a death coming before life is applicable even with Jesus. He says, 
later on in verse 51, and the bread that I give, notice the future tense, the bread that I will give, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So at this point in the story, the incarnation has already happened. Christ has already come down from heaven and taken on flesh. I mean, the eternity is standing in their midst, walking amongst them. The incarnation has already happened, but the crucifixion hasn't happened yet. Right? He hasn't offered up his body to be broken yet. He hasn't offered up his blood to be poured out yet. But it has to happen. It has to happen. This is the way that it works with all food, as we pointed out. Life is always offered from death, and eternal life happens in the same way. In the offering of his own flesh on the cross, Jesus put to death all sin and fallenness and everything debased and wrong with this world. It died with him. And through the cross, death has died, and the immortal one has swallowed up immortality. The bread that he gave was his flesh for the life of the world. But unlike my pear, and unlike all earthly foods, Jesus didn't stay dead, right? After offering his own flesh for the life of the world, he rose again in power because he possessed an eternal, what the scripture says, an indestructible life. He says a few chapters later in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 18, he says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus is the bread of heaven who has come down from glory to lay down his life for the world, for the life of the world. Nobody took it from him. Nobody took it from him. It was a voluntary act of love. To put it bluntly, the crucifixion of Jesus was the most raw, meaningful, profoundly beautiful act of love that the human race has ever had the privilege to contemplate. And what it signifies is true, and he did it for you. He did it for you. And so how are we as flawed, fallen creatures to respond in the face of such love? Because we don't want to miss it, right? We don't want to miss this bread. How do we receive the eternal bread that Jesus offers? Two things. The first is primary, and the second is derivative. First, the primary way that we receive eternal life is by believing in Jesus. Full stop. By believing in Jesus. On this point, I believe the Protestant reformers got it correct. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what Sean talked about last week. When we believe in Jesus, our mortal lives are wrapped into the immortal life of the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I love the clarity of this verse. We can't get confused here, right? How do we receive the bread? By coming to Jesus, by believing in him. And who, and who is this offer for? It's for everyone. It's a universal offer. What if I've done terrible things that I'm ashamed of? What if I can't even forgive myself? Jesus says, whoever believes. Right? What if my faith is small or I just don't know very much about this Jesus stuff? Jesus says, whoever comes to me. 
This is the message we learn from the thief on the cross. You remember that? Jesus died in the center of two other people who were also being crucified. And the one jeered at Jesus and was taunting him while he was hanging on the cross. And the other, the other thief said, don't you fear God? He said, we're here because we deserve it. Right? He's saying, like, we're pretty much getting what our deeds deserve here. And this guy has done nothing wrong. But then he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Right? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That thief didn't have very long to amend his life, did he? <laughs> he wasn't afforded the opportunity to go to church or to be baptized, or even to receive the Lord's Supper. But Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because he believed in the one who was pierced. So what does this communicate to us? It says, if it wasn't too late for the thief on the cross to get eternal life, it's not too late for us. If he hadn't strayed too far or sinned too much, then neither have you. So that's the first and primary way that we receive the bread of life, by believing in the one who was pierced and in the complete forgiveness offered to us in Jesus' death on the cross. But there's a secondary meaning behind Jesus' mysterious words in John 6, because Jesus knew that whoever believed in him would also regularly feed on him through the bread and wine of Holy Communion. Except in extreme cases like the thief on the cross, this was a universal practice for all Christians in the early centuries of the church. So Jesus was not afraid to use essential language when speaking about it, just as he does with baptism in John chapter 3 when he says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right Now there's no doubt in my mind that the earliest disciples understood being born of water as a reference to baptism. In fact, in fact, we have it on, on record that that is how the early church interpreted it. Likewise, when it comes to the Eucharist, we find St. Ignatius referring to it around 110 AD as the medicine of immortality. The medicine of immortality. And here in John chapter 6, I believe is where he gets this reference from. He says in verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. Now, it's easy to, um, to kind of miss this, this sort of secondary significance. And I'm saying it's secondary. Believing in Jesus, Jesus is the one that we need to receive by faith, no doubt. But this, this sort of secondary meaning of what's going on here, because I think we oftentimes misunderstand the way that biblical prophecy works. So we think of prophecy as there's this mountain... And there's this prophetic figure standing on the mountain who God gives eyes to see what's going to come on the next mountain. All right, so that's, that's oftentimes how we think about biblical prophecy. Um, so Daniel had eyes to see that this wicked ruler Antiochus IV would be causing the Jews <coughs> trouble during the time of the Maccabean revolt. That's what he's seeing right here. But hold on a second. What we don't often notice is that the prophets are not just seeing a mountain, they're seeing a mountain range. And so we know that that prophecy in Daniel was also used to, re to refer to Nero in the first century. And in the book of Revelation, that prophecy was also used to refer to the Antichrist. And so there's this sense in which 
There's a mountain range that oftentimes the prophet is seeing. And the first thing that they see, the first thing that they refer to, is not even necessarily the primary thing. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. That we, we hear about the manna, right? The bread coming down from heaven. And Jesus said, what that's really referring to is me. What that's referring to in the ultimate sense is Jesus, the one who came down from heaven to give his flesh for the life of the world. But that doesn't mean that it can't also be referring to the blood and wine, the, 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 bread and, the bread and wine in the sacrament of Holy Communion, right? These things are not exclusive to one another. These biblical prophecies all, all oftentimes have multiple resonances. Um, I'll just say as an aside, it could also be used to refer to the lembus bread in the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> the, uh, the elven bread that sustains them on their journey to Mordor. But I digress. <laughs> now, I know that in Protestant circles, it's somewhat controversial to teach that John 6 has anything to do with the Eucharist, especially since Roman Catholics use it as a proof text for transubstantiation, even though I don't think it needs to be taken that way. But let me give you some reasons why I think this passage is talking about the Eucharist. There are many hints in this text, many, many hints in this text, but I'll just mention three. First, the Greek, the Greek, verb, uh, the Greek verb form of the word Eucharist, Eucharistio, occurs two times in John 6, in verse 11, and then again in verse 23. Now, the literal translation of this word is to give thanks, but we also know from other parts in the New Testament that the early church used this as a shorthand phrase for the Lord's Supper. Second, it seems significant that Jesus mentions not only the eating of bread, but the drinking of blood. Did you catch that? He says in verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if you remember, this whole discussion of the bread of life began with the multiplication of the loaves in the beginning of John chapter 6, which included no mention of wine or any other beverage. Right? So it seems like a strange addition unless Jesus is trying to point us forward to the Lord's Supper where Jesus actually takes up the cup and says, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? It seems to me like that's what's going on. Because furthermore, this was a scandalous image for Jews because drinking any blood, and how much more so human blood, was forbidden by the Mosaic Law. That's why it says in verse 60 that the crowd say, this is a hard saying. <laughs> Who can listen to it? And he's abandoned by the crowd in verse 66. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't mean for his disciples to drink literal blood because the law of God forbade it. But this mysterious word choice creates a test of loyalty. It creates a test of faith, the same way that Israel was tested in the wilderness. And he would later clarify what he needs at the Last Supper. Third, and I think perhaps most obviously, I want us to just take a minute to get into the imaginative world of the Apostle John writing the fourth gospel around 90 AD. Right, a full 55 years after, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So kind of put ourselves in that mental space. And since the pivotal event of Jesus' atoning death on the cross and his resurrection, the church has had five or six decades of regularly gathering together and celebrating the Lord's Supper as the central act of Christian worship. 
That's what they've been doing. That's what they've been seeing. That's what they've been participating in. And so what are the chances that the Christians of that day would read the words of Jesus in John 6 about his flesh being true bread and his blood being true drink and not have the Eucharist come to mind? I think the notion seems a bit absurd that this would not come to their mind. And if that's the case, then what are the chances that Jesus didn't intend his words to resonate in that way? Again, I don't think it's very likely. No, friends. I believe John 6 is a mountain range of biblical resonances. It shows how the manna that God provided after the Exodus pointed forward to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment, the true bread from heaven. But it also shows this sacrament that he leaves for the church by which we can have intimacy, regular communion with him through the breaking of the bread and the drinking of wine. The context at the time was not like it is today. We can be so individualistic about these things, so focused on the 16th century debates of the Reformation, but in the first century, it was just assumed that anyone who believed in Jesus would regularly gather with his people, the church. There was no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. That wasn't even a thing. And that anyone who's gathering with the church is eating the bread that was broken for us, is eating the wine that was poured out for us. There's no such thing as a non-sacramental Christian at this time. It was assumed that all Christians would regularly receive Holy Communion because it was the central act of worship for Christians from day one. Now some will ask, what about all the people who believe in Jesus but don't receive the Eucharist? My friends, that wasn't even a thing. All Christians received it. The closest historical references we have to anything like that was the people who were preparing for baptism. They had put their faith in Jesus, and they were preparing theologically for baptism. They were called the catechumens, right? And every once in a while, they would die before they get a chance to be baptized. And what the early church said about them was that they're saved. Why? Because they've already believed in Jesus, and they intended to be baptized and intended to share in the one loaf of the church, Another question we might ask is this. What if someone is baptized and receiving communion, but they don't truly believe? In other words, what about inauthentic Christians? Do they get a free pass because they're eating the bread and drinking the wine? Because they've been baptized with water? Can we force salvation? Can we force conversion on someone? And here I think the Gospel of John again provides us with an answer. Turn with me to John 15. Just flip forward a few pages. In verse 5... Jesus makes a promise to his people, he says, famously. It's another I am statement. Jesus taking on the divine name of Yahweh. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here Jesus is saying that a true branch will be connected to the vine, right? It'll be connected to the source of life. And since he's the source of life, they will bear fruit in keeping with the eternal life that's in Christ because it's flowing from him into them, right? This fruit will include faith that endures and a life of growing obedience because that's what happens when we're sanctified. Amen, those who were in catechesis hour this morning? It's a life of being sanctified, of being changed from one degree of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit. However, in verse 6, he warns that there are others who would appear to be living branches. That's what the image seems to be saying. 
but they're not truly connected. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So it is with those who outwardly claim to be Christians, but do not trust or care to obey Jesus in the least. In these cases, I'm glad to say we're not the judges, <laughs> it's important to say, of other people's Christianity. Um, Jesus is the one who knows what's going on in the heart. Jesus knows how to wash the inside of the cup. And he himself will be the judge of all people on the last day. Even those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And it's a sober warning. So if we don't want that warning to apply to us, we see two things in this passage. Two ways that we receive the bread of life. The first is primary. The second is derivative. First, whoever comes, whoever believes in Jesus. If you're like, I'm not so sure that's me. I, I'm not so sure I'm chosen. Believe in Jesus today and you're chosen. So here Jesus is called to come to him, to receive him as the bread, the true bread that come down from heaven. That's what the manna was pointing to all along. But secondly, know that Jesus has invited you to this intimate thing, this celebration of your salvation in him that Christians gather to do all the time, and we've done it from the beginning, to celebrate the fact that by faith and by the Holy Spirit, we are in him and he's in us. And it's just a recapitulation of that original salvation that we have when we come to this moment of intimacy. You know, there was a marriage that happened last night, right? Congratulations to Chris and Hannah. And, and when somebody's married, there's a consummation of that marriage, but there's also continued intimacy in that marriage, which points to the original agreement, the original oaths that they spoke to one another, the original vows that they spoke to one another, the original intimacy that they have established in their marriage. And Jesus wants that kind of relationship with us, not just something like, I rose my hand when I was in youth camp, when I was in high school, but there hasn't been any intimacy between me and Jesus since then. No. He gives us the Lord's Supper as a, as a vehicle, as an instrument of his perpetual grace by his Holy Spirit so that we might have union, unifying intimacy with him. So I just encourage you to consider that as you draw near the table today, that that's what the Lord Jesus is offering you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to give us this bread always that we might not hunger and thirst again. We thank you that you've wrapped us into your eternal life. We pray that you'd help us to walk in step with your spirit. Transform us day by day, we pray, not least through our participation in the breaking of bread. We love you, Lord. Meet with us. In this holy time. Amen.